What really sold engineering for Michelle Hayward was when she was 12 and a Category 5 hurricane hit South Carolina. Her aunt's brick house was destroyed. Michelle couldn't understand. How could a home that new be destroyed by a hurricane? That's what got her interested in civil engineering. Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of people finding their fertile ground through sheer grit and resilience. I'm your host, Marie Gettle Gilmartin, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. I help professional services firms avoid boring and boost employee engagement, productivity, and readership. I translate technical, complex, or lackluster language into accessible, dynamic, story-driven text. I alternate this Finding Fertile Ground podcast with my other podcast, Companies That Care, which is about business leaders making a difference in the world. Check out www.fertilegroundcommunications.com for more details. This week on the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, I interview Michelle Hayward, who worked in the engineering industry before striking out to start her own company. After working in the corporate world for many years, Michelle got tired of being the only. For years, not only was she the only Black woman engineer, but she was often the only Black person. Now she runs a company called Positive Hire, which connects Black, Latinx, and Indigenous women who are experienced scientists, engineers, and technology professionals to management roles. Let's meet Michelle. Hey, Michelle, welcome to the Fighting for the Ground podcast. Thank you, Marie. It's great to be here. We have both been immersing ourselves in Liz Simpson's big money movement, and I'm really glad to hear that you've been around for a while. So obviously, it's worked well for you. It has the clarity, and I am very much a process-driven person. <laughs> Being an <laughs> engineer, <so>. yes. <laughs> exactly. Being an engineer, so that has really helped me. Some people in tech are a certain way, certain types of personalities. Yes. Liz can deal with me, so I'm still here. Not everybody can deal with my personality type. I've worked with engineers all my career, so <laughs> I think they're fascinating. I think that the really interesting thing about engineers is that you're obviously so creative because you have to think so differently and inventively to be an engineer, but that doesn't always come across in people's personalities. But I know what's behind that. It is solving problems and that's the most interesting part about engineering. If you are already looking for instructions, it's not the best field to be in. And, uh. and even though we have standards and we have certain boundaries that we have to meet to, depending on what we may be designing or building engineering, it's still within that you set of tools, you're able to still be creative and really think about what's the best solution given the parameters you have. I wasn't even on the design side. I was on the construction side and I would be looking at the 2D drawing or 3D model like, hey, you structural engineers? Yeah, this doesn't work. This is what we, we think would work better in the field. And good engineers listen and have a conversation because they have stamped that drawing. The bad engineers that I've had to work with, like you can't change that. I'm like, okay, bet. We'll redline your drawings and send it back to you to update it. But we were literally in real life and you were doing something conceptualized and you really have to understand how to work with people in that aspect. So I always tell design engineers, I said, you want to do design work? And they say, yes, yeah. spend the first year or two of your career on the construction side, uh -huh. then go do design work. I said, because you will become a much better engineer in understanding how to really take 
this concept and build it and what could be happening in the field or on the construction site and how to better ask questions. They always look at me like I'm crazy. I like you, you're a much better design engineer because you'll know how to talk to people. You'll know how to ask certain questions and you'll know who's really trying to cut corners and who's really trying to figure out the safest way to get something built according to what originally have planned and, and designed. And it's very difficult to do that, especially if you don't have very good emotional intelligence and communication Uh skills. It's better to go out to the job site and spend time there before you become a design engineer. Those are the best design engineers I've worked with. Yeah. And some engineers are not very good at seeing another person's perspective. Some of them are great at that because I'm a communications person. So I was the one who was trying to help them explain themselves. I would be trying bless you. Yeah, exactly. I would be trying to edit their work or I would be trying to help them with proposals or various things. And sometimes, you know, they were stubborn about the way they wanted to phrase something. It's like, yeah, you don't need to use all those words. Other people are not going to follow you when you use all those words. <laughs> are you editing my blogs for me? I'm like, Why did I use 12 words instead of five? I know. Well, yeah. it's not just engineers, it's really the STEM field in particular. I'm working on this startup. Right now, it's an app called Our Love, and it's for couples to improve their relationship. So I am taking these blogs that were written by scientists. Some of them are therapists. They've got more of a science background. And they are just like engineers, right? There's just way too many words, way too technical. (laughs) It's like, this is an app. We need to make it a much lower grade level, and we need to make it accessible and fast for people to get the information. So that's where I come in. I love it. I love it. I need I need to hire you. <laughs> yeah. So let's start with our interview questions. I can't wait to dive in. So let's start back at the beginning. I like to always ask people about their childhood. Can you share with our listeners about your childhood, where you grew up and what was your childhood and family like? Wow. I grew up in rural South Carolina, house full of kids. <laughs> and I mean that literally. So I have three sisters and one brother. So my parents have five kids. So a family of seven in a three bedroom house, that's so much not fun. It brings about the ability to share and understand and respect Mm. spaces. But on top of that, my mother was an educator. She taught in public school here, but then she started her own daycare. So she ran that for over 30 years. So when I say a house full of kids, (laughs) my mother would have another 25 or so in her business. And it was great for us growing up because we were also just always surrounded by other children, but we were also in a neighborhood full of kids growing up. We didn't have street lights, we didn't have sidewalks, but it was still houses and most people owned the houses they lived in, which was really great. I loved having that a backyard. And now that I look back at it, I have an older nephew, he's 29, and he has two younger brothers that were born when he was 13 and 14. And he was just in a different place. He never wanted to be an only child. He asked his parents for a sister. He ended up with two little brothers. That's a whole other story. (laughs) But he always would be amazed at how we grew up together. He was a teenager when I was born. He's my older sister's son. And he was just amazed about how we shared books and we played music together. We fought and he wanted that experience. Uh And so it was really interesting when he got older. He's like, no, I want a sister. I don't want a brother. He ended up with two brothers. But understanding what having siblings meant to him made me really be happy to a certain degree because some of my friends are really great only children but he really wanted a sibling because of how he saw our relationships 
Oh, that makes you appreciate more of what you have. It does, especially now that I'm older. So when you were a kid, were you drawn to science and technology stuff? I was really good at math. I was Mm -hmm. the weird kid. My mom and my siblings will tell this story. I learned my alphabets going A through Z, and then I started learning them Z through A. (laughs) I was bored. I didn't have anything to do. And so I would find ways to challenge myself. And I was really good at math. I did pretty good at science. Then this is late 80s, early 90s. It was like, if your kids score really well in these areas, you should put them in STEM and science and engineering. And so that's where I was steered since I was probably 10 or 12. I did my first engineering program. I was probably just 13 years old. So 30 years last year was when I started my first engineering camp. So it started really, really early. What really got me sold on engineering. As a kid, when I was 12, a Category 5 hurricane hit the state of South Carolina. And my mom's younger sister and her family lived near Charleston, where the the hurricane came on shore. They had a a newer brick home that was destroyed during the hurricane while they were in it. I couldn't understand how could a home that new be destroyed by something called a hurricane. And that's how I literally got interested in civil engineering and decided to major in it. So I always tell people a hurricane made me a civil engineer at 12 (laughs) years of age. Oh my gosh. It really really piqued my interest. Like I I remember looking at a 60 minute story about these people that had designed an egg shaped home on the coast, on a beach. So the winds would literally go around it and not Hmm. try to rip into the corners and everything. Mm. And I was like, why would you build something like that? How do you even build a a home like that or a structure like that? And so it was things like that that really started me into the path of civil engineering and ended up in construction before I left corporate. Wow, that is such a cool story. I love it. Hurricane. And the other thing that really strikes me about your story is back when I was at CHM Hill, we worked really closely with programs like Girls Inc. who try to get girls into those types of engineering camps. So you're one of those success stories. I love it. Yeah, I guess so. How I realized it was 30 years. I spoke at one of the first engineering and science camps I did. I was a speaker last summer. Oh, like, how wonderful. I was like, wait, that was 1991. <laughs> That's like full circle, it isn't it? Exactly. I was like, I've come full circle. Oh my oh. God. Yep. You must have been such an inspiration to those girls, man. That is so cool. I don't know if I was an inspiration as I was like, let's just talk about who has the best engineering program. But just your existence must be an inspiration. That was what I mean. That yeah. You started yeah. out at an engineering camp, right? And yeah. now you're a successful engineer. That's very inspiring. And I know that with trying to reach girls with STEM, that middle school and high school are the real key periods where you want to be giving them those opportunities. It is. And the interesting thing is I, he- I read the statistics, of course, and I have three nieces, one's middle school, one's high school. One is very artistic, really creative with paint colors and different things. The other one is very analytical. And how we really found out one year their Christmas gifts got switched. (laughs) (laughs) The one who's really artistic ended up with a set of Legos. And she's like, what do I do with these? And the one that is analytical ended up with a jewelry making kit. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. They, they hate it. Like we were at my mom's and they were in the den like, what is this? How do you use this? And so the one that ended up with Legos, I helped her. Her mom helped her. 
And then she had to help her cousin with the jewelry making kit. And later on, they were whispering like the gifts got switched. And so we knew right then, and this had to been five years ago. So they, were, they weren't 10 yet. That's how we knew that it really does start early. One was very analytical and the artistic one, she makes all sorts of stuff from lip gloss to slime and she'll go to school and sell it. Like she's on her fourth business and she's 14. So focusing early on girls is really, really important. I was in a place where those data and statistics weren't available, but what was available really a lot of educators who would not let me fall off, including my mother specifically. But also just knowing the other teachers in my small rural town that really were encouraging and supportive of me doing well. Wow. So it's like you were really lucky in the area because a lot, a lot of girls don't have that same experience. I'm sure now it's better than when we were younger. So what was your grit and resilience story in your life and your career? Something that is really common, unfortunately, is the only experience for a lot of Black, Latinx, and Indigenous women in STEM and what I mean is you're the only one, uh, uh-huh. you're the only black woman, you're the only Latina engineer on your team, group, department, company, right? And yeah. so for 12 years I, in construction, I was the only black woman engineer. I was the only black woman, period, to stick it out as long as I did. So many other women from that organization I stayed with for 12 years quit. They went to other companies that had larger populations, but I stayed. I stayed for one main reason, at least this is what I told myself, was somebody else is going to come who doesn't have the wherewithal to do what you've done this amount of time by yourself, being the only. And then when I was sent a message from God and he's like, you know what, you're not supposed to be here. I cried. I've been through so much being the only, but it was time for me to go and build out something else. The lesson he wanted me to learn was over. Now it's time to go execute, right? It was time for me, me to go put in the work. And so I would say that to me was the grit. It's been a lot of people, like, I don't understand how you made it. And then there are other women who are still going through the only process. And I understand to certain degrees how much they make it, but also how much trauma you can go through. Mm-hmm. And so while we talk about grit, there's also a lot of trauma tied oftentimes to that T in grit mm-hmm. is that trauma mm-hmm. part. And, and that R hopefully is that recovery part of you going through what you did in that period. So for me, it would be that 12 years of being the only. And I came from this technical sales side and I worked on a team there were two other black women. There was a Thai woman. There was two white women. Then it was two black guys on the sales team. And these were engineers. And so coming from that type of team in technical sales, where I was the only black woman, was really different. And mm-hmm. I've never worked in a team anywhere nearly that diverse as I did <laughs> in my early and mid-20s. And now you were on the construction side. I mean, I was working in the office when I was at CSHM Hill, but it seems like I'm guessing, tell me if I'm wrong here, were there fewer construction engineers than there were design engineers who were black or there just weren't any black there people were, anywhere? There were very few in the organization. The turnover uh-huh. was really high because the mm. culture wasn't very good. And, and just mm-hmm. an example, I had a, a young black engineer that worked for me. He worked in the office and he's structural engineer. They had him join a transmission line project and he was learning all of this transmission line stuff. I would get on the phone like once a week or so with him. 
and coach him just for an hour to teach him what was going on on the work that he was doing and the type of work because he'd never done a transmission line job before. And he'd been with the company probably five years or so. And what I mean, the culture wasn't good. He was the only structural engineer working on a transmission line job. Mm -hmm. They were bringing in training about transmission lines into the office. He went and asked his boss, could he take the training? His boss said no. And he had changed his LinkedIn profile to add the transmission line work that he was doing. I said, hey, go change this and add this. He got a job offer because he was a structural engineer working on a transmission line job. And when he went to resign, his boss came to him. So he said, oh, don't encounter me because when I told you I wanted to take this transmission line training and there was nobody else on the team in the department working, you told me I didn't need it, that I couldn't take the training. So you don't need to come over here and try to offer me anything. And he left. He was the prime person that needed the training. So you were setting him up for failure. That's literally what his boss was doing. Uh, you see that over and over and over again. The work wasn't high profile work that they had him doing, but he was learning. And he was like, I, Michelle, trust me, I'm not dumb. I said, I know you're not dumb, but I'm going to use this opportunity to learn and grow. And uh -huh. he did. And he got the hell out of the company. Yeah, that's so right. We, so you can, you can throw shit on people. But don't be surprised when they have a nice green line. Right? Yes. And oh, my gosh. That opportunity. Did they have employee research groups or stuff like that at URS? No, no, they didn't. They, they had none of that. They had a, a younger HR guy that was trying to help, but the organization wasn't looking to make those changes. Mm -hmm. And you can only do so much if management isn't willing to work. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that was one good thing about CH Chubb Hill. We had a really strong Black employee resource group, and we had one for Latinx and women and various other categories, too. So that was one good thing they were doing. But in the engineering field, there are not that many people of color. Now, you wrote in the podcast interview forum about companies complaining they can't find diverse talents. And I heard that as well, which is just ridiculous. <laughs> so let's talk about that. What is your perspective on that? These companies say, we're trying to improve our diversity, but you know, there just aren't that many engineers who are Black and Latino and you know other people of color. It is culture. Number one, uh, your culture, you want people to fit your culture as opposed to be a culture ad. Absolutely. And what I mean by that, education is one thing, right? But now you want them to talk a certain way and act a certain way in order to fit into your culture. And that's not how this works. Had I come in to URS, since you said the name, even though it's not around anymore. <laughs> right, right. Um, like C. Hill. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I would not have been able to bring in solutions had I not had the experiences I had creating who Michelle Haywood is. And so going back to that culture of how you approach people, how you talk to people has not changed. Number two they always want to start recruiting at entry level. And oftentimes they don't investigate what's going on in their own organizations where they need to make changes. Meaning, okay, I see you have three black engineers right now at our junior level. However, I did a search on LinkedIn. I found 18 other black former employees. Why did they leave? Oh, yes. Or how far did they go? Because uh -huh. they were all still junior level people. Oh, well... We can't disclose it in this. Oh my gosh. Like, you, you need to not blame how many people there are out there if you're not going to fix what you have going on internal to your organization. Uh -huh. Because one thing is for sure, if and when we find a place we like to work, 
we will bring others with us. I didn't even refer the white people I knew to the company. And they were like, which means I said, because your culture sucks. I like my friends. Now, if I might find a few enemies, hell yeah, I tell them to come over here and work on my way out. <laughs> but <laughs> they really are trying to blame a number. If the few that they do get, they can't retain because of their culture. And they fail to hold any responsibility for that. I talked to so many women in this space and I was like, hey, I saw you were at such and such for eight years. Why did you leave? It's like, oh, my boss left. I've talked to black women like I didn't take a promotion because I would have to go work for another manager. And none of the other managers were as good and equitable and treated me as well as this manager. And when that manager retires, quits, whatever, they leave the organization, too, because they have sometimes a better subculture working under that manager, even though the culture overall of that organization isn't that great. And one of the reasons I stayed as long as I did with URS, I ended up getting a sponsor. And I like working for that sponsor. And wherever he went, I went until he left the organization. I didn't like the person that came in to replace him. I knew it was time to move on anyway. But it's really important for organizations to take ownership of their culture. That's primary. Secondary to that, What happens is they often regulate us to housekeeping duties, figuring we're not smart enough. They don't give us access to high priority projects or sponsors. We might get a mentor, but you probably will not get a sponsor and you sure as hell won't get a partner within that organization. And so that mentor help guide you and give you advice on how to go so far. And then what happens is they realize you're really ambitious, you're smart as hell, And you can do their job better than them. And now they don't want to mentor you because you're a threat to opportunities in that organization. And Mm -hmm. so it's so many different layers in this. And and that's why I built out Positive Hire, utilizing technology and people services and coaching to really help solve some of these issues. But it is very layered. Onion doesn't have enough layers to what's really going on. Maybe a great redwood really gets closer to to what's really going on in the organization. The last year before I started my own company, I worked for a small local company here in Portland and it was like 350 employees, but the entire executive management team was white men. There was one Japanese American man on there and one white woman. And they talked all about DEI. Oh yeah, we have a DEI program, but it was all about maintaining their control. So I felt like nobody was sponsoring women or people of color, no one was helping them get a leg up or helping them advance into these higher level positions. And none of them are giving up their own spots on that team. So frustrating. Oh, I hear you so much. The other thing was that I was asked to sit in on interviews for the new HR manager. So they interviewed two different women. One was a white woman. The other one was half Japanese and half Native American. I thought they were both excellent candidates. And I gave them my list of what I thought about each one of them. I was brought in probably because I was one of the senior women in the company. So I was a token interviewee. (laughs) So I told them what my thoughts were in an Excel spreadsheet. These are the pros of each one of them. And the CEO and my boss, their words were, well, neither of them wowed us. Like, oh my God, they were both fantastic candidates and they didn't wow you was because they didn't look like you, really. But that's why they didn't go for either one of them. It was a mess. Or they weren't going to help them maintain the status quo. Yeah. And if they weren't going to help them maintain the status quo, they really couldn't say. Totally. And the woman who was the Native American Japanese woman who was really strong on DEI, she was asking some really hard hitting questions in the interview. So you you nailed it. That's right. 
if she had been hired, she would have continued to ask those hard questions and they didn't want to deal with it. Yeah. Who knows whether she would have. She seemed very interested and I'm still in touch with her because we hit it off, but she might've taken the job because she wanted to get back into Portland, but she probably wouldn't have lasted long. (laughs) You know, long enough for her not to have to pay back the relocation and she would have quit. Yes. So let's talk about how you found your fertile ground. You got a message from God that you needed to move on, which must've been terrifying to get that message. It was more like, why? You know how much work I've done? (laughs) Like you really want me to walk from this? Like I've been chiseling at the stove with my fingertips. But at the same time, I knew I was always going to leave corporate. Like I was so planning. I, I, I just behaved differently. Like even a couple of friends of mine in college approached me like, so what kind of business are you going to start? Like, I never told anybody I was going to start a business. Oh, really? like, yeah, I know, but I can just tell. And I even had my first boss when I was at URS. He's like, I can see you working for yourself. Because the way I imagine work, remember, I come out of a small business. So to me, I showed up as an employee working as though I owned a company because that's what I saw my mother do. I didn't know you did way less <laughs> as an employee, right? Mm-hmm. And so I just had a different level of work ethic because I was modeling after a business owner, as a, a small business owner who did a lot of stuff, got a lot of done and, and generated a, a six-figure business in a town of 4,000. Like, hell, I didn't know any different. I found out later. So I got the download that I need to leave. I had already started doing online marketing stuff within my last two years in corporate. And I had tried to sell the idea, the concept and start a business around women starting their own consulting firms to get contracts in construction. And the feedback from the women was, I'm not doing technical work. I'm getting pushed out. I got married. I could do nothing right with this company. So I left and went to another place. I had a baby. I'm on maternity leave. The HR calls me in to lay me off. They're going through all of this BS. And I was like, I thought I was doing bad in my career. I guess I'm doing okay. And so somebody says, Michelle, you should do career coaching. I'm like, career coaching? I really don't want to do it. I do it now. But at the time, this is like 2016, 2017. And I'm like, no, that's not it. That's not the solution. And so after I was no longer with the company, you have all of this time to think. And something said, what if you created a glass door? wherein women would know, especially Black, Latinx, and Indigenous women, which of these employers they can advance their careers. That was May of 2017 that I had this idea. I read an article in this magazine and it's like, for 30 days, write down a business idea. Day two was this idea. Wow. Of what was now positive hire. I didn't get past day five because I kept coming back to day two. And I never finished that 30 day challenge because the idea that I was so passionate about that I had to do was the day two idea. Day one is like easy stuff. It was something more civil engineering based or construction based. And this one was more of a problem that I encountered and I knew other women like me were encountering. I've been taking that concept into a service and now to our third minimal viable product because we've iterated and changed it from what it looked like on the B2C side for the women, but now what is the solution on the business side, on the B2B side, to really help them if they want to, number one, determine why Black and Latinx and Indigenous employees are leaving. Number two, how do they solve this problem or resolve whatever issues or reasons they're leaving inside the organization and track it? And so that's what we're building out on the B2B side. 
on the B2C side is still creating a tech that helps women predict which employer is going to be the best for them to advance their careers, to find that right culture where they feel as though they belong, they feel valued, and they're able to grow and advance in their careers. That's great. Just for our listeners, I want to explain what B2B and B2C means. B2B is business to business and B2C is business to consumer. So in the beginning, you were helping women or people of color find STEM jobs. Is that what you were doing initially? Yes. Diversity recruitment is where we started to really understand employers. Because remember, I was an engineer building stuff. I didn't know how this HR recruiting thing worked. And it really gives me an idea of what's going on. Six or seven months after I had the idea, I joined an incubator. And one of the mentors in that incubator, he broke down how recruiting the process Mm -hmm. works. And then diversity recruitment is a whole other thing. And just really getting tactical about it is how you and I met in the big money movement with Liz J. Simpson was I was getting all of these things, but still I'm an engineer. Even though I came from inside sales, technical sales, this was completely different grassroots, no framework. And I needed to build and create all of that out as a founder. It's been a journey. It is never about the end goal. It's all about the journey. I will absolutely agree when people say that now. Well, I'm sure that you're much better prepared to help companies attract diverse talent after having worked directly with people who are trying to find jobs. You're basically giving them a double whammy. You know how it works, right? You know what what people are experiencing. I do. It it was really interesting. I did an executive roundtable last fall and I had a CTO and another client who does the same thing. They go out and they share their job postings to all of these sites that will have women or people of color, combination thereof for these roles. I said, that's great, but you've written it like a man. And it's like, wait, what? Yeah. I said, you're assuming that what will attract a man to a job, right, will attract a woman. And it blew his mind. Like, oh, yeah, I said, you tried something. It's a test. I said, some of your job description is fine. Other things you will need to change Mm because it happened to be a nonprofit. I said, you need to tell a narrative in three sentences or if you can do it in two or one, that's even better. But at least three sentences about why this organization matters and why they need to be an employee working in IT for this organization. I said, so write something that is really powerful, really story driven about what your organization does. I said, somebody in your communications probably can pull that off the website, but it needs to be something very impactful. It was Seattle. I remember talking to a nonprofit who's like, hey, we have Microsoft and all of these other companies we're competing with. I like, you're a nonprofit that feed people, that feed the hungry. I said, I don't understand your problem. They said, what do you mean? I said, you aren't telling the right story. They can go work to Microsoft. Everybody knows Microsoft. But do you know the kid, Keisha, who's seven years old, who's hungry, and how being a software developer here helps feed her and other kids like her? Microsoft going to be a multi-billion dollar company forever and ever. But for me to actually code to help somebody directly, that's a completely different narrative. I say you're more likely to get people willing to work for you if you lead with the impact that your organization yes. has on society. And yes. it their mind, like you're selling the wrong thing. <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, don't get me wrong. Men aren't cold hearted. Like they don't care. Mm-hmm. But girls and boys are groomed very differently. Boys mm-hmm. are groomed to be more authoritative. They are to take care of the family. So you're going to go out and try to make as much money as possible. Women may be taught to be more nurturing, but still 
you're going to go out and still be competitive. And so it can look very different in how you write up your job descriptions to really attract talent that are in this niche and, and that story you want to tell. And so every time you go to a different job board or a different event, your booth may be set up different. The copy you use, because you're in communication, you had to do the marketing side. Mm-hmm. You know you're trying to tell a different story. Yeah. Some of the requirements for the job. Okay, JavaScript is JavaScript. Having a professional engineer's license, having a professional engineer's license, having a degree in mechanical engineering is having a degree in mechanical engineering. But the lead in to get them to even read the requirements is what you really need to focus on. So totally. it, it completely blows their mind when I tell them you're leading in the wrong way. You got to get them in those first few words and then Absolutely. they'll get the job in the company and then decide. You are, you are speaking my story because <laughs> I, I totally believe that. And the last job that I was in, I was actually working with our recruiter on trying to rewrite our job descriptions and our ads because they were written by boring men, not just men, but yep. boring men, right? And so I was trying to get the staffing managers to describe what is a day in the life of this job? You know, just think about what does this person do day in and day out? And what kind of a personality are you looking for as well? Because a lot of times when they're hiring new employees, they're looking for certain qualifications. And it's not just about qualifications. I mean, really what can be actually even more powerful than qualifications is, especially consulting, the people skills are really critical and you're not putting anything in there about that, right? The other thing that I was really interested in pursuing when I was at that company and then I got laid off, so I wasn't able to pursue it, was that it seems like companies need to be doing blind hiring and hiding the names of people and making their resumes and their cover letters more nondescript so they are not discriminating against anyone, either women or people of color. I think they need to do A-B testing. And what I mean is they haven't changed the culture. All you're doing is changing your recruitment process. Oh, yes, totally. So, <laughs> yes. so you're going to hire the, the, in air quotes, the most qualified person, uh-huh. right? But what happens on the other side of that is the culture sucks for that person. Uh-huh. So now like, well, we hired and we did this. Why did they quit? Like you didn't fix what was wrong in your organization from the beginning. And so I always tell people recruitment is the last step. They're like, what? I said, I want to start with recruitment. But the fact is you need to work on yourselves first. So to me, all of the management needs to understand what racism is and how it's perpetuated. So on an individual level, they need to go through some anti-racism training for six months a year to really understand what that look like. And most will refuse. Like we have a DEI person. Uh-huh. You're the one that builds the culture in this organization. It starts from the top. If you, that, this person is coming into the organization or they're coming out of a different role, sometimes even out of engineering to run DEI, they can't change anything because you won't agree to change the status quo and you don't understand how the status quo is racist and sexist. It's against differently abled people in so many different levels. It's against moms, right? But it's for dads or sometimes it's just against parents and caretakers, period, until they go through some individual trainings. Then coming back, right, and say, okay, oh my God, I didn't realize any of this. Like our policies and procedures all need to change. So now you're going through 
a culture transformation and you're changing your policies and procedures and you're putting it through a DEI lens to see who are the marginalized people that are being impacted. And just taking a statistical data, you have all of these dots on a graph, right? And you have the straight line and everything that hugs the straight line, like, yes, uh, we have most of the dots along the straight line, like, yeah. But if I told you the, the dots that are furthest away are your problems, are people that are most likely to leave your organization and they're indicating things are not right. And so now you got to investigate every single dot. And, you know, the feedback is, well, the majority is OK, but the majority is not people of the color. The majority is not women of color. The majority is not women. Right. And so you can't make that change by just saying the majority because it's the marginalized, it's the minority, it's the underestimated that you say you want to change for that you aren't changing for. And so now we go back into that cultural transformation. All the management, especially mid-management, has to be trained. And so I know organizations right now, they're having their Black employees go through executive and leadership development training. But you know what some organizations are doing differently this time? They're making the managers go through training on how to support black employees. And three years ago, that would be like, we, yeah. why would we do that? We, I know how to support managers. Right. You can't recognize your own biases yes. in yourselves, in your policies, your procedures. And that's why I say blind is one thing, but you have to understand between blind is the B test. The A test is your traditional way. What happens? What was different? Well, I didn't realize it was a woman. Well, I would never do that to a woman. You did it five times and you did not select a woman when you could see her. But it's surprising that your top three candidates were all women when they were blind. They have to see the difference to understand they have biases because if you do it blind, they haven't changed anything. And so after you go through the culture transformation, then that changes your retention policies and like how you're able to retain talent. And then you can go through your recruitment. So I always say it, it's always done backwards. They want to look at recruitment. Uh -huh. then people are leaving. Well, in exit interviews, we need to find where they're leaving. It's so many setups. And so right now we're seeing a lot of black people get promoted. It's called a glass cliff. It's a very unstable. We have a high turnover employees. Some companies have grown tremendously. Others like Peloton, they had an immediate spike at the beginning of the pandemic. Now they're laid off 2,800 people. What you will see now, if they keep any black employees, they may promote them, but it's a very difficult time in that organization. And so that is generally where you see the most women and black employees get opportunity is when the company is in the most trouble. And yes. if they do well, guess what? They then get removed and like somebody else comes in like, you did a good job, but go back to your old job. Uh -huh. well, Right. Or they get set up for failure. Yeah, so exactly. They get limited resources to try to recover that organization or that team and that group or that project. And like, we knew you were going to fail. It was like, well, damn, you asked me to build a building and you gave me a, a toothpick and a plastic spoon. <laughs> and no likes. They told me it was, a, it was a nighttime construction job. And so you see these things over and over again. And it's really important for organizations to start at the top at self-introspection and, and their own training. 
before they bring in a DEI person, before they really make any changes, because the changes have to start with self first. I totally agree. At CSGM Hill, they brought in a woman to be the CEO, which was really exciting to have a CEO of a major engineering firm. But of course, we were in trouble. So fortunately, she was able to set the company up to be sold. So she was able to be successful. But boy, did she get a lot of flack. She got so much flack and it was hard to see that. You've got so much wisdom to share, Michelle. I really appreciate everything that you've contributed to this discussion. So I just have a few more questions. Sure. Think back to yourself at age 21. What would you say to her now, knowing what you know now? Oh my God. Pay more attention to your sales job. (laughs) You're going to need it later. Save more money when you're in construction. You're going to need it later. And don't buy that house. (laughs) It's going to drop and you're going to end up sitting on it for five years. Oh, no. Do you still have the house? Did you get rid of it? I I sold it seven years ago. Don't you wish you could go back and give her advice? (laughs) I I did bet on my home purchase. I have some friends. Like I was just $10,000, $20,000 upside down or or lost value. It's friends that are $100,000 plus. Oh, my gosh. They were in brand new subdivisions that never got finished being built out. That's horrible. I was really fortunate. Like, oh. I mean, I lost money because I did upgrades to the house. I lost all of that money plus money on a mortgage that I never saw back. But, you know, paying a mortgage in a house that you weren't living in because I was in construction. So I was on the road 25 Mm. out of 30 days. It wasn't near where my family was. So I would literally only go to the house twice a year. And one of those times was to get a new roof put on, right? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And then to find out a, a tree had fallen in the backyard. So I need to get somebody to come and cut up the tree. Um, it was always something. Um, tried running it. That didn't go as well. And so it was really so many different things that I was like, yeah, this is a lesson learned. That's what I would tell like, hey, in a few years, in like 2007, eight, you're going to want to buy a house. Don't do it. Just <laughs> it's the best decision you'll ever make. Just continue to rent, save money, and it'll work out in the end. The other question I have is, is there a story of grit and resilience or finding fertile ground in your life that has been an inspiration for you? Oh, wow. I I have a friend and he, from what everybody can tell, had a pretty easy standard life. So went to college, started a business, grew it. And before he was 40, he was a multimillionaire. But what a lot of people don't know was that he actually caught a federal case for armed robbery ended up doing prison time, got out of prison, went to college, got a computer engineering degree. Wow. Ended up getting his first job at a bank. (laughs) Really? (laughs) And they didn't mind that he'd been in prison? He did a great interview with somebody that was in management there. And the person, they went to the same college, they had similar majors. And the person like, you know what? You're hired. Like, I don't need to interview anybody. And they left. It's like, yeah, I got to tell like, oh, shoot, they're going to run my background. <laughs> so my friend literally called the hiring manager back like, hey, thank you for the offer. But this is what happened when I was a teenager. I caught a case. This is going to come up. He's like, you still have the job. You were a kid. Wow. You're 30 something now, right? He was probably about 30 at this point. And he ended up getting a job. So people are always surprised that my friend has been to prison, that he has a record. And it's like, you? He's like, yes. And so what he learned in that process was he had a lot of anger issues. And his parents tried everything. His mom said to live with his dad. They had done everything they could do. And people just didn't understand. But what also really helped him 
He's like, recidivism is really about you being able to change who you're around. Mm -hmm. And when I got out, I was not around the same people. And I knew I needed to do something different with my life. And so he like, that's how I ended up in college. He was like, I wasn't the smartest student. It took me extra long than anybody else. But he realized that he wanted to do something different in his life. And his parents had really tried everything. He was like, Michelle, I had the best parents. I was just determined that I was going to do whatever I wanted to do. And he said, I did. And I learned what my parents were trying to keep me from. And people now can't believe the things he went through. And he learns for the most part after all of these years how to control his anger and the things he has to do as a father, two kids. So it's really interesting to see him and really having gone through so much and now be on fertile ground. So that's one person who inspires me and he cracks me up too at the same time. What a story. That's incredible. Exactly. So my final question is just how can listeners reach you? You know what? Our favorite playground. Hit me up on LinkedIn. <laughs> yes. Um, send me a connection request or a message and say, hey, I heard your interview with Marie. I would love to connect with you. Awesome. So, and you have a website, I assume, too. I, we do positivehire.co, hire like hire people. <laughs> I don't Depending where you are, you might think it's spelled so H-I-R-E. And <laughs> so positivehire.co is, is also the company website. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great to get to know you. And I look forward to now when I see you on Zoom, I'll say, oh, there's Michelle. I know her now. <laughs> yes, I love that. Definitely, Marie. Yeah, it's great to chat with you. Thank you so much for your time. And I will be in touch. It was so much fun to talk to Michelle about the industry where we both grew our careers. If only we ran the engineering industry, we'd have so many improvements to make. You can see photos and learn more about Michelle at www.furloughgroundcommunications.com. Look for the Finding Furlough Ground podcast tab. Listeners, did this episode inspire you? I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or have an idea for a guest or topic I should cover, drop me a line at marie at furloughgroundcommunications.com. Thanks for listening to the Fighting for the Ground podcast. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and leave a review.